Okay. What? It's Thursday night. The Pasha Shoftim. <laughs> the topic is coming to Yem Hashem which is a Pasuk. It's a Pasuk of the Chumash. The Pasuk. <laughs> That's what the Pasuk says. Coming to Yem Hashem The difficult word, of course, is Tamim. Tamim. What does Tamim mean? So if you look at the dictionary, which is not an unreasonable act, but not always fulfilling. So if you look at the dictionary, it'll say pure, straightforward. Let's say words that are themselves optimistic, but not clear. Like what sort of perfection are we talking about? What sort of straightforwardness are we talking about? And how is it possible that this could be formulated in the Torah as a mitzvah? What is the mitzvah of Tomim Tiyem Hashem Now it's important to recognize the fact, even though, I mean, it's true that in more modern kinds of interpretation, the context of Psukim of the Torah is also meaningful. Even though we were brought up when we learned in Cheder, we learned a different method, like sort of every Pasuk or every half of a Pasuk lived an independent existence and was not connected to anything else in the world. But if we would look, I'll look, if we will look in the Dvarim, in that Pasuk, in Perik Yuched, our parashim, Perik Yudchet, right? Pasuk Yudgil says, "Tomim Tiyashem That comes after a series of psukim, which begin in Pasuk Tet, and these psukim discuss a particular topic, and it says, "Ki Atabal Haaretz, Asher Hashem Elokechem Notein Lach." And you know that. That there are a lot of mitzvot or a lot of directives in the Torah that are preceded by Kitavol Haaretz, which gives the implication that coming to Eretz Yisrael is an act of tremendous responsibility. It's not like you go to Eretz Yisrael to retire, or you go to Eretz Yisrael to bask in the sun if you come from a country that's not so sunny. But, but Eretz Yisrael Eretz Yisrael is an opportunity to do better to do better than what? it's hard to understand because in the desert after all everybody did very well the desert was not a place where it was easy to do Averot even though it's true that there were some examples of that nevertheless Kitavol Haaretz the Torah says Asher Hashem Tegotein Lach so there's, a, there's a, an issue that even though we are commanded to chase away or to chase out all of the indigenous idolaters nevertheless it's not a chase that's going to happen in a day in fact we know that how long did it take how long did it take it took uh, 14 years and even in the 14 years they didn't quite do it you know that the book of Shoftim which comes after the book of Yoshua but Yoshua is the book that describes the conquest of Eretz Yisrael uh, the book of Yoshua I'm sorry, the book of Shoftim is the book about the Tzarot that B'nai Yisrael had because they did not drive the idolaters out of the country so even though they conquered the country, and even though they perhaps would have been able to conquer the country, but they had to drive out the idolaters, they didn't. They didn't drive out the idolaters. Now you know that the book of Shoftim, for those of you who are Tanakh buffs, which is a kind of buff that is somewhat in style today, right? People learn Tanakh, isn't that true? Yeah. So, well, it's in vogue. 
synagogue used to be that people just knew. <laughs> they knew it about that. You know, it would be again. Today, people learn the Tanakh. Right? Well, whatever that may mean. So they learned the Tanakh. So in the book of Shoftim, it's very important to remember that the setting of the book of Shoftim is in the northern part of Eretz Yisrael, what later on was called Yisrael, as opposed to Yehuda, what we call Shomron, because at an even later date, it was called Shomron. So I listen again. The book of Shoftim takes place entirely in Shomron, the upper part of Eretz Yisrael, Right? The tribes of Ephraim and Menashe and Yisachar and Zebulun, all of them. But the book of Shoftim does not mention Yehuda. Right? You know that Yehuda is the south of Eretz Yisrael. Yehuda, the tribe of Yehuda, which includes really three tribes. Right? There's Binyamin, which is like a bump on the north part of Yehuda, and the, type, the tribe of Shimon which is a bump on the south part of, of Yehuda. And in the book of Shoftim it says, this book takes place entirely in the north of Eretz Israel, because that's where the tribes conquered, but were not successful in driving out the idolaters, whereas in Yehuda, in the south, they conquered and they drove out the idolaters, so that there was no story to tell about Yehuda. But in the north of Eretz Israel, there were like these 40-year cycles, where you won a war, and you beat the enemy, and then everything relaxed, and people started watching television, and went to the movies, and, and that was it. That was the end. And then that 40 years came, and do the whole thing over again, to undo the mess that they had made. Who, of course, was running the movies and selling the videos? The people, the idolaters, who had not been chased out of Eretz Yisrael. So if you wish, this is a metaphor for all of history forever after. Or if you wish, it just happened then. And it never happened. It never will happen again. You know, you could take it as you, as you like it. So the Pesach says, the Pesach says, Lo tilmad lasot yitoavot It's as though the Torah knows that the issue is not solved by military might and prowess alone, but you have to have some kind of character resilience. You have to be a person who can stand up to the attractiveness of idolatry and reject it. And say that, okay, I know it's, it's, it's attractive, it's like a nice way to spend my time, but I have a better way. I have a better way to spend time. And then the Sukim go into this list of who has to be avoided. The Pesach says, You should not fall into this habit of burning up your children. Now here I'm not exactly an expert at all of these things, but we understand we would call it magic. But magic, you know, is a sterilized word. Right? Magic is what the children do when their parents are eating in the hotel. Right? They go to the magician. So a magician is a nice guy. You know, he's not a an enemy. He, he was a minion in the morning. <laughs> this guy, this Hosein Samim, he's the enemy. He's the enemy because he has a different ideology, has a different philosophy, and he thinks that his job is to manipulate heaven. Right? I don't know if Rahman al-Islam, any of you ever read, uh, Rahman al-Islam means God forbid. So, they ever met, read the stories of Greek mythology. But you know that in Greek mythology, those of you who have read it, no. No, it's not mythology. That's history. But, but in Greek mythology, you know, the gods are like vying for attention and trying to take things over. They're like just big overgrown people. Who, and they do the same thing that the little regular sized people do, except they do it all bigger. You know, they, 
So, so these are these guys. Kosek Samim, Monaim, Menachesh, O Mechashef. All of these words are words that we could translate by magician, but if we translate them in that way, we wouldn't get the force of it. Because a magician in the Torah is a person who has an ideology. And his ideology is that if you're like Bilam, right? Bilam was a Kosein Kisamim. You can manipulate heaven. Heaven is not the end of the, of the line. But, and and, and we, our faith does not depend entirely on what God wills, so to speak. But our faith depends on how much we can affect the will of heaven. That's Kosein Kisamim. So you know, that's obviously a tremendous attack on Jewishness. Because Jewishness, there's a kind of common thread that the Torah sees to being Jewish or being part of Am Yisrael, is accepting the notion that in some ultimate way, we may not understand it, or we may not always see it, but that God is in control of history, of destiny, of ultimate kinds of notions. And that's what we were supposed to learn in Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Right, Yitzhak Mitzrayim was not just an event where the Jews were transported by some sort of magic carpet to Har Sinai. But they went through pain. And the pain that they went through, that the Jews went through, not the Egyptians, they went through a lot of pain also. But the Jews went through pain. And the pain that the Jews went through was an attempt to teach them what's the real world about. Who's really in charge? And that's not such an easy thing. And all these people that are listed here in the parasha have a different idea. They think that there's some kind of a deal. God's in charge. But if I figure out how to mix the spices correctly, then I'm in charge. Right? At least for that moment. There's a whole list. Kito avat Hashem God despises anyone who acts in this way, meaning meaning that it's counter to God. It's contrary. It doesn't mean despises in the sense that, you know, I don't like to eat so-called eggs. No, it means it means that it's it's counterindicated. It doesn't get along with God. It's not something that can live in peace with God. Right? That's called and that's idolatry. Right? There are there are religions as you know, they can live in peace with God. They're not Jews and they don't have Torah, but they don't deny the basic principle of God's relationship to the world. Like uh, Islam, for example, is a religion that uh, certainly the Rambam thought and other Rishonim thought could get along very well with, with Judaism. Not, not that they would make a partnership, but that, you know, you didn't have to cross the street. You know, remember, I, I don't know if you remember, but in Europe, you know, remember the shtetl, the little shtetl in Europe? You don't remember? So when you walk down the street, and you saw that you were going in the direction of the church, I mean, you crossed the street. I mean, they were the enemies. The church was the enemies. The church was seen as being, I think they killed Jews. That's a different kind of enemy. I'm talking about the church was seen as being an idolatrous entity. True, also, Machlokes, not always clear, uh, what the extent of the idolatrous but on the personal level if all the, you ask the beast to cross the street I was willing to cross the street just not to pass by not to pass by the, uh, the church nobody nobody grew up in uh, Poland would ever take a shortcut through the church you know what I mean it's, it's, it would be unbelievable not because they knew the halacha or they understood it was just something that was unthinkable I mean how could you how can you do a thing like that? How can you kind of get benefit from the fact that the church is situated on the crossroads? Whether you go in one side and come out the other, it's not, not even a question. If you had asked my grandmother if you could go to see the artwork in St. Paul's Cathedral. <laughs> so once I would explain to her what the cathedral meant, that would sort of be the end of the discussion. You know, it wasn't... The idea of art didn't have that, but that's a different world. But I mean, that was a world that, that's very much in touch with the ideological question on a certain level. So that's what the Pesach says. You should know. You should know. And this is always an issue in the Torah. 
And it's an issue in Halacha. The Rabbi talks about the Hilmos Juva. So what did they do, these Canaanites? Like, we rushed in. Right? We had our, like, planes and tanks and, and, and whatever. Or we had even better. We, had, we blew the shelf and the walls came down. That's even better than a tank. Because it's hard to beat a chauffeur. Right? It just, there's no military way. So we came in, we blew the chauffeur, the walls came coming down, and we won the war. So the question is, how come the Canaanites deserved it? What they do? They just were Canaanites. I mean, they weren't, you know, we don't have a record of anything they did that was so terrible. They never did anything to us. When Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov lived in Eretz Israel, they basically went out there. They weren't persecuted. Yaakov was a little nervous when his sons went and killed Shem and Hamor, but that's understandable. I mean, you might, somebody might get annoyed about a thing like that. So what they do, what did they do wrong, the Canaanites? So, so everybody talks about this, but it says in the Apostle, he says, Beglal ha-to'evota e'la shev So in other words, in the world, there is some sort of a baseline. There's sort of some basic understanding that is demanded of all the people. And when the people in Canaan turn themselves into a center of idolatry, then they deserve to be punished. What the Hechadimtza of punishment was, you know, that the fact that the, the B'nai Yisrael came and they wanted to take over the land, or God wanted them to take over, but that doesn't matter. The fact is, that they deserve to be punished, and they would have been punished one way or the other. They would have been, they would have uh, 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 achieved this comeuppance because they did not believe that the world was run by God. And therefore, they deserve to be punished. And the B'nai Yisrael, from that point of view, were only a Hezadimtza. They're only an, an, a kind of an excuse. It's only the way it happened. It wasn't that they were punished in order to make way for the Jewish people. This is something that is repeated again and again in the Tanakh. And even though, even though it's clear that Abraham, Avinu, was ceded the land of Israel, was his, nevertheless, kicking out the Canaanites is its own issue. And they can't, there are those who say that the hundreds of years that passed in the Triumph and then the Abdullah, partially in order to past the time until the Canaanites had sinned so thoroughly that there was no other possibility except for them to be punished. That's what it says. And then after this long discussion about magic and Canaanites and Toeva, abominations, the Paul So that the word Tomim somehow means the opposite of everything described above. And everything described above is, is idolatry. The idolatry is not worship, but it's an idea. It's an idea, right? It's not about a statue. It's about the idea of worshiping this statue. You know, I grew up, I grew up in Brooklyn, which is not something necessarily to be proud of, but it's a fact. And I went to a very big uh, the shul that I grew up in was a very big shul that had a balcony. You know, it had old time shuls and wooden benches. It was really nice. And when I came, I was a little kid. I came to the shul. You know, there were eagles in the shul. You ever see eagles in a shul on top of the Iron Kodesh, on top of the Aseris, the Dibros? A big eagle holding on to a globe with a wing out. And then, you know, years later, I, I learned that we shouldn't uh, make images you know, of things. But there it was, right in Shul. And on the walls, pictures of all kinds of interesting things. It was often more interesting than trying to dive it. But all kinds of stuff. And then in the, in the, in the dome, you know, every Shul had a dome uh, for some reason or other. So we had these domes, and domes had stars in it, and moon, and, and all kinds of great stuff. <laughs> you know. Yeah, okay, but did they never read a fossil in the footage? Ever? <laughs> Nobody? I mean, it wasn't a thing, you know, like you could, you could be pedantic, you know, that's called, or a synonym for pedantic is, halachic. It'd be halachic saying, alright, is it this or is it that? Is it, you know, maybe it's mutter, maybe it's not mutter, but it wasn't frightening. 
Nobody was going to start worshipping the eagles that were running around in shul. It wasn't, it wasn't something that anybody was nervous about. It was a technical question. Right? Is this somehow, you know, like, like that's what we do. We, we follow the rules. Like, we are follow the rule kind of people. Even when the rule is not fighting against anything that we're so excited about. Right? But we follow the rules. So there's a question. How come this rule was not so... Today, nobody would do that. Can you imagine an architect coming and saying, build me a shul, so, you know, he said, oh, we'll put the eagle right here on top of, <laughs> on top of the shul khan where they put it up. I don't think it would go far. I don't think it would go far. Today, nobody, nobody would do a thing like But it's not because uh, the eagles, because the eagles are out of fashion. Not because they're more halachic or the architects know more about halacha. just that who wants an eagle running around in my shul, right? So Rashi says this, Tomim tiyem Hashem alokech. Raji has a position about what Tmimut is. And that position is that we have limited ability. We have limited ability. We can think about the present, we can think about the future, but we can't know it. That's what Tmimut is. That you recognize that after a certain point, it's in the hands of God, so to speak. I can't, I can't get into it. I don't know anything. It, it says, Hitalehi mo bitmimut. Go with God with bitmimut. Don't try to be a fortune teller. But today, you know, there are all kinds of fortune tellers. Some of them read palms. Some of them read the bottom of your feet. Some of them read your mezuzahs. Some of them, everybody's reading something and telling your fortune. Here Rashi says, I don't like any of that stuff. That's not right. Some things evolve. Some things are not to be known in advance. But we deal with them as they come along. Whatever happens to you, which I think Rashi means to say, don't try to manipulate the future. Don't try to find out what it is. And then, Manipulate it so that maybe it won't happen. That's what being with God means. Being with God means recognizing that you don't know everything. And you can't know everything. You can't affect anything. And that's everything. And that's all called being with God. That's Rosh. <laughs> now listen to the look at the Rashbam. Remember the Rashbam? Is, the, is really the next generation, right? It's the next generation after, after Rashi. Rashi's son-in-law. Right? What? I mean, son of his son, uh, his grandchild. His mayor was his son-in-law. Right? And, Ra- and the Rashbam is his son. So, but the Rashbam was a student of Rashi's. Right? The Rashbam studied with Rashi and finished his commentary on Shas, the part that weren't finished, and he also somehow felt, as he says himself in his introduction, that he was sort of like the next level of commentary. But Rashi did level one, and that is never going to be equaled, or bettered, or changed. And he did, he, the Rashbam, did like another level. But not that level one was kind of rejected, it was just another level. So what does he say? Go to God and don't go. So, like we call this davening. Right? You daven. You go, don't go to the meitim. The meitim, apparently the dead, give you much more accurate information. They tell you exactly what's going to happen. They tell you, you know, how it's going to be. I told you once that Shaul Hamelech. Shaul HaMelech went to the Balat Oba, there was one, uh, the witch of Eindor. And she told him. It really worked. Shaul HaMelech uh, wanted to talk to Shmuel HaNavi. When he wanted to talk to Shmuel HaNavi, Shmuel HaNavi, unfortunately, at that time was dead. So he went to this witch, and he said, I mean, this is also like a tragedy. There's a lot of tragedy in Shaul HaMelech, and what modern modern commentators love Shaul HaMelech because he's very tragic personality. Everybody loves to talk about tragic personality. 
Because uh, what are you going to talk about? It's a happy personality or somebody who had a good life and, and did what he was supposed to do. I mean, it's totally uninteresting. So, tragic personalities, that's what we like to talk about. So, Shola Melk was a very tragic personality. He had himself gotten rid of all the witches in Yisrael. And then he realized that he needed one. <laughs> so he had, apparently there was this third grade witch who was the witch in Eindor, which is not like on a, on a major highway or centrally located. And she did it. Sorry, what's up to Shmuel? Here he is. Poof. And he came up and Shmuel told him what, whatever it is he didn't want to know, actually. But told him. Mimeno tidrosh v'lobedamektim. Love and Amitim is a theme in the Tanakh. Right? That there are Neitim. Neitim have a certain amount of power in psychological, in psychological terms. You know, we all know that death is, has a tremendous effect on us. The thought that we are going to die, the thought that somebody close to us has died, the idea that somehow if we could maintain some kind of communication that this would be positive. All these ideas are around all the time. You know that there's a minhag there before Rosh Hashanah. People visit the graves of, uh, of uh, those close to them who are departed. It's not, if you ask people why they do it, it's not always clear, but this is true about I mean, Litvaks who traditionally didn't do this are not innocent of this. Governor Rabbi Salavetrics of Rabbi after his wife died, used to visit her grave every week, I think. It was almost like the Lubavitcher Rebbe visiting the grave of his father-in-law, which is something that he did every single week of his life. Right? He used to take, he used to get pitkaot uh, for brachot to collect them in a sack and he would go and bring them personally to his father-in-law's grave and daven for all the people who gave him gave him pitkaot so I'm not making the comparison all I'm saying is that death is something that impresses us it's something that's hard to deal with there are other things that are easier for us to deal with like well like changing your diet or like, you know, exercising. Death is very hard. Because it's not something you can try out. <laughs> you know, I can't say, I have tried it out too far like it. It's not, it's not like that. It's not like that. So, so it, it becomes annoying. And this is what the Rambam says. Okay, let's learn the Rambam a little bit. The Rambam, the Rambam, so, if you're not so interested in precise translations, we can go on. But if you are interested, it's not so easy. We know what the word means. It has something to do with one. Our hearts should be a love levado. That's a hard thing for us to do. To think about one thing. Only one thing at a particular time. Which is why the people who sell meditation are somewhat successful. Because they offer meditative kinds of reflection. They offer that. You'll be able to concentrate, but they say uh, nothing. Imagine that. Doesn't that sound wonderful? To be able to concentrate on nothing? Okay. It's not, it's not, uh, uh, the Ramban says, Miached levadenu a love to God levado only. Vinamin, shehu levado sekol, and we can come to this belief. It was the Ramban, it's not, where is in the Rashi, when you read Rashi, when you read the Rashi, it sounded like, everybody has to make this choice. I can be a God person. I can be an idolater. Just make the right choice. Just go down the right path. The Ramban is already emphasizing the fact that even if you make the right choice, there's a difficulty 
in achieving the right choice. It's not quite the same thing. It's not quite the same thing to say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokech, Hashem Echad. Anybody can do that. But to really be able to reflect on what Hashem Echad means, that's hard. Or to be able to kind of relate to it, to those words in a way that's very intimate and personal and clear to each one of them, that's hard. So that's what the Ramban says. There's a little bit different than what Rashi says. We will get the future from God. So there's a method. There's a method even within Judaism to get the, some inkling of the future. In fact, halachically, Sometimes it's necessary. If the king wants to go to war, or if, uh, if they, they have, he has to go to the Urim Vitumim, to the Kohen, and he has to get permission. In other words, which means he has to get permission from heaven. Because you wouldn't go to war, you wouldn't want to go to war in a situation where heaven denied you that, that permission. And he says, And we won't go to these kinds of magicians. And we will not be able to support the idea that they are right, that they know what's going, going to happen. And even if we hear a, uh, like a guy telling the future, which is not the same as, uh, as uh, saying what the weather is going to be in, in Yushalayim tomorrow, but it means something unknown. Even if it's right, even if it turns out to be right, I mean, what difference does it make? Everybody could say it's going to rain tomorrow. But if you say it's going to rain tomorrow, what if it rains? So all of a sudden you're like uh, got a special you a special category. He says no, there's only one category, and that's God. Everything else is is not a pontiul. So that means that the effect that we can have, I mean, well, the way we interact with the future is by doing God's will. That's our ace in the hole. That if we do God's will, everybody knows, everybody knows that even if the Navi comes and says that there will be a punishment for the iniquity that you have wrought, you can still do tshuva. And if you do tshuva, and the tshuva like the people in Ninveh, you do tshuva, so then it won't happen. Even though we know that the Navi is a Navi, and what he says is true. So our ace in the hole, so to speak, is that we can be better. That's, what, that's how we can affect the future. We can't affect the future by manipulating it, but we can affect the future by being better by deserving a better future, by becoming part of the divine will for Olam Hazeh. So I think that there is a, the difference between Rashi and the Rashbam on one hand and the Rashbam on the other hand, that Rashi, when you read Rashi and the Rashbam, it sounds like what they're saying is you just have to make the choice. You have to make the choice to be with God and not to be with idolaters. The that even if you've made the choice to be with God, that doesn't mean that you've driven idolatry out of your system. That doesn't mean that you have no way of, uh, uh, or there's no recourse to some kind of idolatrous position. Right, I don't want to say, I mean, I, I, I'm going to say, but I, I don't want to, I don't mean that I'm not talking about anybody in particular, but you know that it's, it's very customary today for people who have tsar in their lives to say, okay, like I davened, and I said to Helen, and I did what I was supposed to do, so I need like a vitamin C. So I'll go to see Kishuv uh, Macher X. I'll go to see somebody who'll do something that'll give me an edge. But uh, it doesn't seem to me that there really is an edge other than davening and saying to him, which is a form of davening, 
And then uh, what you're saying, what you're doing is sort of presenting yourself to heaven as a better person than you might have been. And that's a good thing. That, that's what has an effect. But everything else seems to me to be less than uh, desirable. Let's turn the page and look at the spot there. We learned the Rashi, we learned the Rashban, we learned the Ramban. There are a few other sources that I didn't look at because um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you look at them. They don't change the picture that much. The picture is Rashi, Rajbam on the one hand, and the Ramban on the other. The Lord has the Svatanet. Svatanet. Svatanet, you know, was the second Gerarev. Right? The first Gerarev, the Chedushi Arid. Right? The first Gerarev is the Chedushi Arid. The second Gerarev is his grandson, who was called the Svatanet. He called himself the Svatanet. His name was Ari Lake. The family name is Alter. Right? Uh, the family name before it was Alter was Ruttenberg. Right? Ruttenberg, Alter, those are the names that are the names of the Der Rebbe and his family. Um, Ruttenberg was his name, but Alter, they went to jail. You know, you know how it was in those days? It was good to have another name. And the computers didn't work so well. So it wasn't so hard to do it. So they did it. The Svatimet used to give these dress shows on Shabbat, right? And, the, and, and, and they were written up and published and, uh, in a certain way. And recently, they were republished by Yeshivat Oretzio in a very good, not, a very helpful edition. Let's look at all the, the pagination. This is not that. What you have is not that. Because you know, you know how it is. You can't give out the best in sheets to the class. But I'm telling you that the best exists. The best is the addition of Oretzion to the Svatimet, which has all the, the cross-references and all the, the psukim are noted. It makes it, it makes it much easier and more pleasant, and the notes are often very good. They're very brief, and they're cross-referencing in one place in Svatimet, another place in Svatimet. But they're very, uh, they're very good. There's another edition of the Svatimet that somebody's putting out, but he hasn't finished it yet. The Aretzion is out completely, five volumes of Chumash, plus a volume of uh, on the Moadim, right? There's a volume of the Moadim. What? Which one? And a volume of Tehillim, and then there's also an index volume. Once they put all this out, it's very good. If you know, and and Svatimet is very popular today. Everybody likes it because, because it sort of gets to the point. You know, sometimes Hasidus is very long and unwieldy and difficult to get through. The Svatimet tends to be somewhat more, um, you know, usable, user-friendly. You can, you can get to the idea. You can get to the idea even though the language is not always our language. But you can generally get to the idea. So the Svatimet is very popular. People like to learn in yeshivot, in the seminaries. They, they, they always give either their chavrusas or they give courses on Svatimet. So this is the Svatimet. The Gera is a very interesting group. You know, they have certain ideas and they distinguish themselves in certain ways. But everybody knows that the Geras like to learn. And all the Rebbes in Gera Hasidus were great Talmidi Chachomet. The Chidushi Arim in the first Ger Rebbe was the Godel Hador in Poland without a doubt you know, everybody recognized him as being Godel Hador so people were disappointed when he took up Hasidus with such great uh, verb the Svas Emes was a great time the Imre Emes I don't know if any of you know uh, Ger the Imre Emes and then after the Beis Yisrael these are all big Talmud and learning in Ger is a very important is a very important feature very important feature of, of life, right? You're supposed to learn. You're supposed to learn, even though, as you, you know, Hasidim also work, but they, they like to learn. But they, they dive very fast in here, something that most people would appreciate, but you don't know about it. They're very fast. But when they finish davening, Shabbos morning, they start, let's say, at 7, they finish 7.30. They davening very fast. Then they learn for an hour. You know, they sit in shul, they learn for an hour. So this is like, you know, this is gear. It's not gear. Just like a couple of curious things. So look at the spot they met. 
And the Svatavet wants to say something. He wants to deal with the problem that the Ramban brought up. And the problem that the Ramban brought up is, how do you do it? I mean, I mean, okay, we know what Tamim means according to the Ramban, that there's one God, and the unity of God is clear to you, and your dependency on God is, is clear to you, and your inability to manipulate God is clear to you. Oh, that's clear to you. But how do you become Tamim? Like, how do you go through? How do you make it... Like, how do you change yourself from someone who is not like that? I mean, you're not an idolater. You're just not a serious person. How do you become a tamim? How do you do that? That's what the Sfatah meant. So I talk this Hasidim. It's on Shabbos. And you know, Hasidim thought of themselves as, as, as an attempt to spiritualize existence, which I think means a, a more of an awareness of God, more of an awareness that God wants from us, somehow making decisions in life which include that awareness. I'm not saying that every chassid that you can read in Gula is like that. I mean is that in the beginning, when Hasidus started, they had interests. They said, we're not satisfied. We're not satisfied with what we have with going to shul, right? It doesn't satisfy us. We want something better. We want something better. For me, as an individual, people have this feeling that they had the right to want to do better. And they had leaders that told them that they were right. That they did have the right to do better. Whereas, you know, other groups of Jews, their leaders said to them, well, if you don't know how to learn, then you don't have any rights at all. Which was a little difficult for those people who did not live. So what does the Right, those are the psukim that I read. Right? Right, that's all, uh, uh, like that's, the, those are psukim. And then, right, introduction, psukim. So you're supposed to know what he says, he says, it says here, v'chulei, so he understands. He expects everybody who's like listening to him knows all these psukim by heart. And he doesn't have to even repeat that. That would be silly. Which is probably true because they all went to Cheder. And you know, Cheder, they learn everything by heart. And so they all know the Chumash by heart. Then he says, So now he, he says, I, I, I have to explain this word to you. This word, Tamim. Which we started off by saying has a certain dictionary meaning but we don't always know what that means. Like, what do you mean? I am Tamim. He is not Tamim. Like, what does that mean? How do I identify it? How do I plan on achieving it? How do I move in that direction? I mean, you know, we, we have this habit of taking words and making them into mantras. You know what a mantra is? A mantra is something that doesn't mean anything. Right? So, so if you say the word emunah enough, it won't mean anything. Right? So that, that's what happened to us on a certain level. We, we don't have the capacity to reinvestigate for ourselves simple terms. Emunah, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Echad. Well, everybody understands that. I mean, why would you even think about it? Why, why, why would you imagine that there's something here to study but the Svas Emes was not that kind of person he was willing to ask that question what is Tmimut what is it so he says Ikar HaTmimut Yiliyot Bechol Dabar Shalamata Tveikut Bechelek Shalamala ok now this you have to buy into it a little bit Right, there was this idea which derived from the way Kabbalists thought about things. And the way they thought about it was that if God created the world, then God created the world out of godliness, because that's all there was. And even if you say that God created primal matter, which was somehow neutral, nevertheless it also comes from godliness. And therefore... It's only a short way from there to imagine 
that everything in the created world is reflected in some way in the sublime world of God. So that godliness is not an out-of-body experience. It's like, I have to like forget myself and who I am, and then I somehow float up to heaven. But in the created world, if I'm able to look well enough and think clearly enough, I should find the path to spirituality in whatever I am doing. And so the Swazema says, Hold the Mata means the created world. They could Nala. It somehow creates the ability, the opportunity, the openness to Lamala, to heaven. You can get to heaven. The Ishi said, So if the Lamata, and somehow it's our job to imitate Lamala here Lamala now that's easy enough to say it's certainly not clear but according to the Sata and then it's a starting out position what we are doing is trying to connect to God and we have what do we have we have arms we have legs we eat we drink right so we make brochas we dance sometimes, we do mitzvot with our arms, with our legs, but it's all an attempt to turn the created reality into the special reality relating to God. Then he says, further, we all know that in the mitzvah of Milan, of circumcision, it says, the Tzvah says about, Hashem says to Abu Rabinu, so in other words, in order to do that, in order for you, Avram Avinu, to be Tamim, the Pesach says, Brit Milah. So this, according to Svatanet, is a key. This is something that's going to help you to understand what are we trying to figure out? What Mimut is? So somehow this is going to help me. How? The Yesh Allah. The chinat olam shana nefesh. Now, start from olam shana nefesh. This, this is a kabbalistic notion which the Svata Med uses in his book maybe a hundred times. Because for him, this was like the olive base of things. Olam, olam refers to kedushat hamakom. Right, that there is kedusha in place. How do I know this kedusha in place? Eretz Yisrael. Right? What's the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael? Mitzvot atluyot ba'aretz. There's Beit HaMikdash. What's the Kedusha of the Beit HaMikdash? Right? All the Mitzvot of Korbanot, etc. So there's Kedusha in place. Then there's Shana. The word Shana means time. It means year. But it, it refers to time. When is there Kedusha in time? For the Jews, Shabbat, Moadim, right? Those are things that happen on particular time, and they're connected to Kedusha, right? We say the Kadesh, Yisrael, and then we say Shabbat, Vazmanim, or we don't say Shabbat, right? But, we, but we're, we're aware of the fact that these special days are special because of the Kedusha in them. And then, of course, there's Nefesh. Nefesh is the person who can do mitzvot. Doing a mitzvah means that you're following God's will. Following God's will could be described easily as being kedusha. So let's go back again. It says, "The yesh orla, the chinat olam shenavnesh orla is something that prevents you, something that stops you, something that doesn't let you be as good as you could be." So he says, "Orla, that's not just a physical." a physical part of a person's body, but Arla, that exists for Olam, Shana, and Nefesh, for place, for time, and for the person himself. So he says, he says, obviously, the Sadabet says, obviously, so what's an Arla? So why did God, why would God tell us, the Jews, the Jewish people, that everyone has to get rid of the Orla? Because, he says, the Svatanet says, there is no Orla in heaven. 
And quite the contrary, the reason that we were giving the Orla was in order to be able to dispense with it, to show at the age of seven, eight days, that, that the child was to make himself more appropriate for his mission, which is to come close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Okay. Yesh ba'olam dvarim yeterim she'ein bahem shoresh b'kidusha lemala. Similarly, there is in the olam. What's the olam? The olam is place. In the place in the world, right? There are extra things that don't connect to something that is rooted in heaven. L'chein nikra'im keshafim What's Kshafim? We call them magicians. What does the Gemara call them? Machishim Koach Shelemala. In other words, the world is full of things that don't connect to the Spirit in Heaven. All of those things are categorized generally by the word Orla. And all of those things have to be removed in order for us to be able to act Tamim. Right, they all have to be, they all have to be, because that's what it says in the Pasuk. It says, Tamim Tiyeh. I'm sorry, it says, Titalech Lefanai Veyeh Tamim. In other words, Tamim means that you have to be prepared to accept the spiritual obligations of connectedness. So that just like the Orla is something that prevents you, so took Shafim prevent you, because you can't turn Kshafim into heavenly. There's no such thing as a heavenly or divine or heavenly or divine Kshafim. Shoresh means there's no root, which means they don't connect. They're like extra. The world is full of, full of extra things. The Maharal talks about it, talks about this. You all know that, that we are graced with with um, with otios limbs, right? Like the appendix, right? It's not you know like we could argue until the cows come home whether it does do something, it doesn't do something, whether you need it, whether you don't need it. But one thing is for sure, one thing is for sure: if they cut you open, it doesn't matter if they find that the appendix is infected or not; they get rid of it, right? It's like, you get rid of it. <laughs> it's like, it's like uh, I mean, they, uh, the doctors do it for a different reason. Because they, they're worried that if somebody gets appendicitis and, and, and he has a, a, like, a, you see the scar, so the, the doctor will assume that they took out the appendix and he must be suffering from some other illness and misdiagnosed and then it will become a problem. But as a marshal, you see, it's kind of agreed by modern medicine that like, the appendix, what is it doing there? Who needs it? Like, there's such a thing. It's such a thing that's unnecessary. So, so the Torah says things that are unnecessary are things that don't connect to the spiritual values that we're interested in. So we see it in the body, and we see it in the, in the, in the, in the kshafim, so he'll come and say, so, so it's not up there in heaven, so where did it come from? When God created it, where did it come from? Okay, so he has an idea. He has an idea. So, but, but, but let's translate it into words that are more appealing to us. His question is, what is tmimut? What is tmimut? So he says, tmimut means that you're able to connect yourself to your spiritual source, which is God. What is orla? Orla is a general word that defines or describes anything that prevents you from making that connection. So that while the Torah suggests certain tikkunim, certain fixings that you can do, like what Tomim Esalech Lefanah Ven Tomim is talking about the Orla you could you could go and, and Kishufim that are suggested in our Psukim we can continue to look into ourselves and see 
What are the things that are in the category of our life, meaning the crust that we've developed about ourselves, about ourselves, the habits that we have, the things that we like, the, the things that we do that prevent us from achieving any kind of a, 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 a real attempt to come close to our Kodesh So there's an example, there are examples in the Torah, which only exist if you think about them, right? Otherwise, Orla, who knows what an Orla is, unless you think about it the way the Svatimet thought about it. But once you think about it, you know that Orla and Kishav are not the end of the road, but that every person has to look at themselves and see what the Orla is that is preventing my achieving smimut. So that you could almost say, say, even though the language of the Svatimet may be a little bit odd for us. Right? These words of Shoresh and Shamayim and Orla and Torah, like, they're not words that we are, are, are used to, but that in modern language, he's actually giving you a suggestion. He's saying, look, coming to Yem Hashem Elokecha is a very nice possum. But it doesn't just mean don't be a bad person. It means get rid of the bad influences that actually affect you all the time. And everybody knows, everybody knows that it's true about something. Everybody gets angry too easily. Everybody uh, um, is unpleasant at certain times. Everybody decides that I'm doing something so important that I can't got time for for anybody else or to be pleasant. Just everybody, everybody is uh, is like that. And therefore, therefore, the Rambam already said that if there's an ungodly trait, everybody likes to talk about Moshan Horror, but the Rambam said, if there's an ungodly trait, it's anger. In anger, Moshe Rabbeinu fell to anger, according to the Rambam. So say anger? Rambam, the Rambam, right? Maimonides. Moshe Rabbeinu, when he hit the rock, he was angry. He said, Shimu He was angry at B'nai Israel because he was angry at B'nai Israel at that moment, he did not represent the Torah. Because the Torah cannot be represented by anger. Anger means you can't think about it. You're beyond thinking. Right? That's what anger is. You can't like reconsider. You're just consumed by a, whatever idea you have and you don't understand how anybody could disagree with you. That's what anger is. So when you're angry, you're not teaching Torah. When Moshe Rabbeinu is not teaching Torah, he's not Moshe Rabbeinu. He's not Moshe Rabbeinu. This will be judged in the way other people are judged, and he won't go there. So that's the Rambam. That's what Rambam says. I'm just telling you that anger. Who doesn't get angry? Who doesn't, you know, who doesn't have his mind clouded by by some anger or by some old old uh, argument that he had uh, 50 years ago with with somebody or other? You know, I mean, who who doesn't have that? But that includes your ability to achieve the Tmimut. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Maharal says, HaKadosh Baruch is one, the Maharal says there's many, many places. The Maharal says God is one. So we have to find one. We have to find one, someplace. He says, you look around, you see, it says in the Mishnah, everybody has a different face, everybody looks different, but he is different. Where's the one? He says, that's the challenge. The Rabbah says, that when you give stokin, when you give stokin, the Gemara says, the Gemara says, if you have an opportunity to give stokin to a rich person or to a poor person, you should give it to a poor person. So everybody says, for this I need the Gemara. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, like it's kind of, uh, you need the Gemara to tell you to the church, you give money to a rich person or a poor person, you should give it to a poor person. <coughs> What kind of Gemara is that? So the Maharal says, you have to understand the Havamim. That giving money to a rich person is also stuck. And he doesn't psychologize and say, because the rich person thinks he's, he's poor, or because he's cheap, or because whatever. He says, but he says this, he says, giving stuck is an act of achdut. Giving stuck is, is about sharing. It's about sharing. I have money. I want to share it with somebody who needs money. That's called... That's called stuck, right? So, what there is to make it to rich person is poor, poor person. The Gemara says, but you have to know that with a poor person, there are other mitzvot that you're doing when you give, when you give him money, right? You give him nicer and stuck. There's also a mitzvah, not just the sharing of it, but the sharing of it is good for everybody. So, the achad, 
the achdut, the unity in the world, right, in the world, you have to look for it. So, but if you're angry, you'll never find it. Because the people you're angry with, you'll never be able to get together with them, not even in theory, in thinking, right? You can't, uh, you can't even think about them as being part of, of you. And I'm not talking about politics or philosophy. I'm talking about families. Families, you know, brothers, sisters, parents and children, that's all. In that context, there's always, there's always anger. There's always anger. So that stops you. According to the Sfas Emes. Sorry, he didn't say anything that I said, but I, I understand the Sfas Emes this way. And so, Tamim Tiyem Hashem means, according to Rashi, you choose the right path, implying that the path is available. The Ramban says, it's not the path that is enough. Beyond the path, you've got to kind of convince yourself of what the Tmimut that you're looking for is. And then, according to the Svatimet, is you use the models of Kishuf and Rit Milah, you see that you can actively clear yourself up. Like you can make yourself more liable for the spirituality that's implied by the word Tanim, Tmimut. Right? We went from, like we did, a thousand years. Right? There's a thousand years of Jewish thought and thinking. But so two things are interesting, right? One is, of course, that the Jews keep thinking. And that the new thinking is not that worse than the old thinking. Or the opposite, maybe the old thinking needs the new thinking in order to be able to actually clarify things. Have a good job.